Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and hey, it's summer. People are on break, uh, so we thought we'd rerun uh, a couple of episodes that uh, we're really proud of, uh, that I think has a lot of really insightful information about addiction. So uh, without further ado, let's dive into the science of addiction. Uh, Julie has returned to us from New York City once more. It's true, and you have returned from Laryngitisville. Yes, yes, for the most part. Yeah, yeah, you're there. Um, yes, when I was in New York, I attended the World Science Festival, which if you guys have never heard about it, you should immediately, well, after this episode, uh, check it out because they have some online offerings that are wonderful. But when I was there, I checked out this panel on something called the Craving Brain, and that's what we're going to talk about today, this idea of what addiction is and what it is not. Ah, so it's it's about the craving brain, not craving brains. Not the okay. Yeah, no right. zombie content, as far as I know, is going to tumble <laughs> forth from our lips today. Because it's my understanding, if you showed up for this uh, this talk expecting a lighthearted discussion about zombies, uh, you would have been pretty disappointed. And so that's what we're discussing in this episode: addiction, the science of addiction. And, uh, and, and it's, it's really fascinating, this topic, because, uh, I, for me, I, I had not really looked into it before. I had, uh, I wouldn't say this just a surface level understanding of addiction. Like, I, I was privy to some of the, the science and some of the, 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 the levels of deeper understanding uh, involved in addiction research. But, but still, it's so misunderstood, uh, at large in our culture, even today. Yeah, and I feel like we are only now getting a baseline understanding of it. And a lot of that has to do with the brain itself. We talk about mm-hmm. this all the time. Like, we still don't know exactly how the brain works. And uh, we have more of a clue now than we did 100 years ago or even 20 years ago. Um, but the fact of the matter that addiction, uh, writ large, is still going to be something that we can't fully cover in depth. And, in fact, for us to do that, we would just have to become the addiction podcast. So we could really um, give it its due day to talk about every single aspect. But what we want to talk about today is just sort of like this this idea of addiction in the past and the present and uh, what are some of the driving conditions. Yeah. So this idea of addictive substances, um, you go back far enough in history and you, you get into, I mean, really you don't have to go far back in history at all, where our culture is full of simplistic examples of what's going on, simplistic uh, explanations for what's going on. Yeah. You know, you can say, oh, well, that person is addicted. Uh, clearly, there's a flaw in their character. Or that person is addicted. There's uh, there you know they're completely controlled by this uh, demonic substance. Or you can throw it to environment and say, well, they're just not in a good environment uh, to uh, uh, you know, and that is what's making them weak to this substance. And that's the thing too. It's often seen. Even even among people who have a better understanding it uh, of it, it's seen as some sort of of a, of a weakness of character, even though. There, that we have so much science to uh, to argue differently. Yeah, there's this real need to blame someone or something yeah. when it comes to addiction. And so you had mentioned the substance, right? Oh, mm-hmm. it's the substance that is the problem that has demuni- uh, demonic possession of the person. Well, if that were the case, then everybody who ever put a bottle of whiskey to their lips would be addicted to whiskey, right? So we just know that that logic is faulty. And um, yes, it's also looked at as a shortcoming in a person's moral compass, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lack of, of willpower. But finally, we are beginning to understand addiction in terms of a disease with genetics and environment really playing into how the human brain can change a person's behavior. 
Indeed, and it's that d- disease model of addiction that has really uh, taken hold and become our major means of understanding exactly what's going on. Even even though, again, that still hasn't quite seeped into every uh, you know level of our culture in terms of viewing addiction in those around us. Yeah, but I do think that the more and more information that is um, that's really given to the the disease brain part, the more we can understand it as a disease like diabetes or anything mm-hmm. else that's sort of chronic. Um, but let's talk really about what an addiction is, because when I think about it, I think about this irresistible urge to consume a substance or engage in a behavior over and over again, even though I know it's going to cause me some sort of problem later on. And uh, it turns out there are three dimensions to addiction. Craving, kind of binging. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, just intoxic- intoxicating yourself. And three, the withdrawal or the negative effect. So you have to think about addiction in that way. It's not just, I really like uh, creme brulee. Mm-hmm. And so I, I eat that ten times a year. It's that you can't stop eating the creme brulee even though you keep throwing it up. Yeah, yeah. There's a, some people may you know, jokingly say, "Oh, I'm addicted to this, that, or the other." But unless it's uh, unless you're actually throwing up that creme brulee again, you're you're, you're probably not hitting all the uh, the points on the addiction. So th- some of the basics here that you you just alluded to. Um, We've discussed many times just in terms of what it is to be human, and that's, mm-hmm. that's one of the interesting things about addiction is that it's really tied in with the human experience. Um, because you mentioned the uh, the short term goal versus uh, short term vision versus long term problems, you know that 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 constant inability in humans to really decide uh, on the on the long term benefit over the short term benefit benefit. And then the other thing is that this is of course all. Um, tied in to the pleasure centers of the of the brain, the reward circuit, about uh, you know in, in which we have neurotransmitters uh, of dopamine, and it's tied into the basic genetic mission of the human uh, creature, right? Uh, yeah, we're getting getting this pleasure, and the pleasure is a reward for things like eating, drinking, mating, the very basic things that we have to check check off the list uh, in terms to to meet that genetic mission. But when you layer upon you know all the complexity of uh, Cognitive evolution, mm-hmm. human culture, it gets more complicated. So suddenly we have all these other different activities that can end up releasing dopamine. I mean, everything from eating and drinking and mating to going shopping. Uh, studies have shown you get that release uh, sometimes even when you're, do- you're uh, you know, donating to charity. Uh, but also when you're engaging in something like illicit drug use or even, even uh, quote-unquote non-illicit drug use, legal drug use, or, or even just a, you know, a cup of coffee in the morning. Yeah, I mean, to put it really simply, pleasure is tied into our survi- survival. Mm-hmm. It's the way that it, our, our bodies and our minds are wired. And so when you think about these different things that we become addicted to, you can kind of think about them in terms of supernormal stimuli. Exactly. And we talked about this, uh, how that has such a pull on us, because that's that thing just kind of like with lights blinking around it saying, hey, this is awesome. You should try me. Um, if you get pleasure from me, you should do it again. And in this way, you could think of a drug as being a sort of uh, like heroin being supernormal stimuli, that sense of contentment and pleasure that you would get. Um, your body doesn't know whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. It just knows the feeling. So most drugs activate this pleasure circuitry, this uh, this dopamine uh, circuitry that we're talking about here. So we're talking alcohol, we're talking nicotine, heroin, cocaine, uh, amphetamines, cannabis. Uh, the only things that really don't make this list are hallucinogens, LSD, and mescaline. And as a side note, food can be an addiction too, but we'll we can talk about that oh, yeah. very quickly. As, as pretty later. much any human behavior. Yeah. yeah. 
So let's say that you have, you know, a glass of wine. Uh, there's that reward that occurs in the brain. You get a flood of dopamine, or I shouldn't say a flood because it's not an actual flood, but you get a significant amount or increase in the brain that feels like a flood. Mm-hmm. And that strengthens the neural pathways, the memory of the behavior, making it far easier to recall the pleasure and then engage in that behavior again and again. Yeah, this is interesting. One of the uh, the presenters at the World Science Festival mentioned 9-11, the whole idea, you know, everyone knows or think, thinks, thinks they know exactly mm-hmm. what they were doing uh, when 9-11 occurred, like that strong memory, that, uh, that sort of pillar standing up, uh, standing out from the landscape of our existing memories. And drug memories are like that. Nora DeValco was the uh, pr- presenter, by the way. Um, but on one hand, this this uh, this sounds completely um, obvious, right? Because when uh, when one is uh, engaging in some some kind of drug, be it a cup of coffee, a cigarette, wine, heroin, etc., et we're dealing with a heightened level level of pleasure, mm-hmm. and therefore, conceivably, that is a more memorable moment, right? You're feeling really good at that moment, and therefore, your brain is encoding that memory and all the various stimuli around it. So it's not just I had a cigarette and the cigarette was uh, enjoyable and mm-hmm. was pleasurable, but I had a cigarette at a bar. I had a cigarette among this group of people. This song was playing. All of this stuff sort of gets encoded into the memory. Yeah, and that's the thing that makes us really complicated in a sense because it's very hard to tease out the behavior from the genetics, from the memory, from the environment. It's almost like all of these have a, a bit of play into addiction. And according to the National Institute of Health, uh, you can see that with brain imaging technology, that addiction is disrupting specific brain circuits affected by addiction. And uh, they say that this these changes go beyond the brain's reward system to include regions involved in memory, learning, impulse control. And we'll talk more about that later. Stress re- reactivity and uh, repeated drug exposure resets these circuits toward compulsive behavior so that a person's control over the desire to seek and use drugs is compromised despite whatever consequences arise. So I thought that was interesting. Again, it's not just the behavior. It's that it's creating these kind of neural pathways, these sort of ghosts in the machine of your brain. So even if you abstain from from drugs or that thing, you may still have triggers that would activate those pathways. All right, we're back. We are discussing addiction, the science of addiction. Uh, we've just finished talking about uh, addiction, um, what it is, mm-hmm. how it works, what are some of the basics uh, in, in terms of our understanding of, of, of addiction from a uh, disease model standpoint. And uh, this leads to the inevitable question, who becomes addicted? Because we, we've seen this, we see this all the time in the world around us. It's not an equal playing field. Uh, addiction is not an equally equal opportunity offender. Uh, some people have more of a problem with it than others, and how do we figure that out? Like, what's going on there? We can't just say it's, you know, God shooting lightning bolts of addiction down at people and making, uh, you know, packets of drugs land in front of some and not others. I mean, they're, uh, just as addiction itself is, uh, is, is more complex than that, uh, who becomes an addict is also, uh, fairly complex situation. Yeah, and of course the the older model would be, oh, it's the person who who has no willpower. It's yeah. the person who just doesn't have any integrity. And we know this is not true. We know that addiction is not any one sort of magic bullet um, mm-hmm. that arrives in a person's chest. Um, you could have a genetic disposition 
uh, which would cause you to have a blunted reaction to dopamine, and that would require more and more of the substance to produce the same sense of pleasure in someone else. So in other words, for me, um, I genetically have stuff um, that has to do with addiction in my family, so it may, may be that I need uh, six beers to your two beers to have that same level of dopamine uh, activity in the brain and that sense of pleasure. So that's one way uh, that, that a person might be become addicted because they have the circumstances in place. And then, of course, we have, um, you know, the environment, um, how much stress is in that environment. And we also have the way that the brain develops. So genetics, let's talk about this real quick. Studies of identical twins indicate that as much as half of an individual's risk of becoming addicted to nicotine alcohol, or other drugs depends on his or her genes, and twin studies on addiction don't reveal the full reaction range of genotype, right? But they do indicate that under a particular and really relevant societal scenarios, genotype plays a substantial role in your vulnerability. Yeah, 50% is pretty impressive because that is that is higher than some cancers mm-hmm. in terms of, of how much genetics is playing a role. Now, it's also not as simple as saying, oh, well, here's the gene for uh, addiction. Can we zap that? No, it's, it's more complicated than that. We are, uh, we're not at the point yet where we can just say, we can look at somebody and do some sort of funny little scan or blood test and say, oh, well, this person's prone to addiction. Although one day we one may day. be able to, but of course, it's just, it's a hard thing to answer right now because, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you, if you were to scan a child and say you, it would appear that you, may become addicted to something or you may have addictive behavior, part of that environment is going to factor into that. Right. Um, so, again, it's just not that, um, you know, cut and dried. So David Linden, the neuroscientist and author of The Compass of Pleasure, um, has some really good information out there about variants and genes that turn down the function of dopamine signaling in the brain, if anybody wants to read more about that. Um, but we should probably talk about environment and its stressors triggering self-medicating behavior, because David Linden says that stress hormones are secreted by your adrenal glands, and that sits on top of your kidneys and they pass into your brain and they bind stress hormone receptors on neurons in your pleasure circuit. And they set in motion a series of biochemical steps that end with you, say, having a bowl of ice cream or smoking a cigarette, essentially anything that's pleasurable to try to negate the stress chemical reaction happening in your body. Right. And then we eventually end up encoding the, the habit, right? Yeah. where we associate feeling stressful with the release of having that cigarette, that ice cream, or, of course, Ben & Jerry's cigarette ice cream. Yeah, and we can, we'll talk a little bit more about habits uh, later on, but then you also have other conditions like you might have PTSD, mm-hmm. you might have depression or uh, ADHD, and those underlying factors could certainly ramp up this feeling of stress, uh, anxiety, or depression. Um, add to this, you have uh, teenagers who are beginning to take on some of these substances and their brains are pretty malleable. We know this. We know that their prefrontal cortex, for instance, the seat of judgment, doesn't even really complete itself until the age of 25, in some cases much older. Um, right. So we know already that teenagers are at risk in the sense that they don't have the sort of executive functions that might stop them from engaging in risky risky behavior. But moreover, there's some evidence that, say, dabbling with nicotine, with cigarettes, could actually prepare their brains 
to become more receptive to other substances. Yeah, this is really interesting research because it, it deals in part with that idea of, of something as a gateway substance, as a gateway drug, which is a term that has really lost a lot of value, I feel, yeah. thanks to its yeah. overuse in uh, drug war campaigning. Because on, because, you know, we, we all heard this growing up, you know, this substance, this experience is a gateway to other experiences. It's like, uh, you know, stepping your, uh, your foot into the water and then that undertow is going to grab you and just drag you down through worse and worse drug experiences into some sort of ultimate doom. And, of course, people's realities tend to be, uh, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, don't smoke cigarettes. It's a, it's a, it's a gateway drug. And then what it, when one attempt, eventually tries a cigarette and they realize, hey, my life didn't just end. Uh, you know, I, I don't feel the world collapsing around me. I don't feel that undertow dragging me down. Uh, therefore, this can't be that bad. And uh, those they must have been just completely full of it and trying to scare me with scare tactics into not trying these things. So it's, you know, reasons like that that you often end up throwing the idea of a gateway drug out the, out the window. But the, the science behind this uh, really argues in the favor of, of cigarettes, particularly. Mm-hmm. Serving as I almost don't want to say gateway drug because it, again the, the term is so uh, so bad but it but but what is occurring here is that the nicotine is essentially opening up the pathways loosening yeah. the pathway for addictive behavior with other substances. Yeah, according to uh, neurobiologist Amir Levine, and he was on the panel, ninety-seven percent of cocaine users smoked first in their teenage years, which mm-hmm. is astounding. So he thought, well, is this is just, you know, cause correlation here? Is there something actually to this? And so he and his colleagues began to look to see if there are any long lasting changes in nicotine use um, in the formative years, in the teenage years. So what did they do? They plied mice with nicotine, followed seven days later by cocaine. And compared with mice on cocaine who had not previously received nicotine, the animals were 98% more active and 78% more likely to return to areas previously associated with the cocaine. Yeah, and the reverse did not hold true. The cocaine had no effect on nicotine-induced behavior in the mice tested in the study. Right. So um, this all has to do with something called the FOSB gene, which is related to addiction. And what we see is sort of a this is sort of layman's terms or I'm not going to get too deep into it. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the best way to say this is that there's a sort of a greater expression of that gene, of that FOSB gene. If, as you say, the, the pathways have been loosened by nicotine. So when cocaine comes along, hey, look at this. We, we sort of know the drill here is what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It, it loosens up the DNA packaging system that's, uh, that's involved here, and, it's, and, it, and, and it allows greater expression of that phosphate gene. Now, the added problem here is, um, as we've talked about before, the amygdala in teenagers has a heightened sense of fear. And a heightened sense of stress when you're a teenager. And mm-hmm. the amygdala is so interesting to me because it processes both physical pain and emotional pain. Yeah. So if you're a teenager and you're brooding, you really may feel like life is terrible. Life is ending. You're being hurt. Yeah, we and, did that whole episode on the um, what I was a teenage teenager, I think. Yeah, I was a teenage teenager. <laughs> and so it was it, I think we had mentioned then. So as as an adult, you hear a teenager talking about this and you feel like they're just being uh histrionic when in fact they are actually 
feeling that level of pain and discomfort. Yeah, and there, uh, I think we discussed in that that episode. Uh, one of the things about the teenager's brain is that, from a you know an evolutionary standpoint, the teenager is primed to leave his or her community and find a new community in which to thrive. Which means that there's an increased dependence on social pressures, on fitting in with a social group, because that, in an evolutionary sense, means survival. And you know, to add more fuel to the fire, if you happen to be that person whose uh, whose genes dictate an amygdala in the first place, that's more reactive to stress, then you are going to feel things a little bit stronger than your average bear, both as a teenager, teenager and an adult. So that makes dealing with environmental factors. Uh, emotions a lot harder, and you can see how people begin to turn to things to comfort themselves, right? Whether it be food or smoking or drugs or some other, I mean, sex addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many different ways to, to actually try to stoke those, um, I guess you could call them embers of, of pleasure and content. Now, an important thing to keep in mind about, uh, about addiction is that it actually changes the brain. Uh, in, in, in many ways, physically changes the brain of the addict, uh, and, uh, and 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 so we're going to run through some of the the, the uh, changes that are happening here. Yeah, uh, we mentioned that there is uh, a loss of dopamine receptors in the brains of addicts. Those are D two receptors. So again, you would see that it takes more dopamine to get that same sort of level in your brain of pleasure. And we, I think, we mentioned that more in genetics, but. Mm-hmm. When you're taking a substance um, repeatedly, of course, you're going to have some changes in your dopamine receptors. And, and what's interesting here, too, is that it's not, not just the, the dopamine receptors as affected by the drug, because that's kind of an obvious, mm-hmm. almost a cliche that we understand with, uh, with drug addiction. Oh, well, now you, you have to use more to try and chase that original high, mm-hmm. or you're having to drink more to, 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 uh, to reach the same level that you were reaching previously. But uh, it also uh, bleeds over into other areas of the dopamine experience, into things such as love, uh, appreciation of food, uh, various you know and, and other other things in life that would give you the same dopamine effect. You feel less of it, so it, an addict ends up feeling uh, their connection to the rest of the world uh, dampened or even deadened. Uh, and uh, and the easiest way to feel normal again uh, in regards to those uh, connections is mm-hmm. to turn back to that drug that's warped the dopamine uh, cycle to begin with. Yeah, it's terrible, right? Because mm-hmm. at first you, you're just chasing pleasure, and then uh, the, the effects of that substance have taken such a toll that you're just trying to chase a sort of equilibrium. Yeah, that's an important thing to keep in mind, and, and also a, um, something that they, they, they hit on in the, the presentation at the World Science Festival, mm-hmm. is that there's it's easy to fall into this outsider mode of thinking that, oh, an addict just likes to feel good, and that's why they keep taking the substance in order to feel good and to get high and to escape. Whereas, to, to your point, it eventually becomes not about feeling good and about recreation. It's about treating, self-medicating their own illness, really. Well, anybody who has experienced the hair of the dog the next day, right? You mm-hmm. know, what's so the whole thing? You have a hangover. Dog hair in your mouth. Yeah, you have a mm-hmm. hangover. You've got a bunch of dog hair, uh, a clown nose on, and uh, you don't know what happened. No, actually, you wake up and you say, I'll just have a beer to sort of reset myself. I've always wondered if that works. I always read about it, and you know, they're always doing that in, uh, in various noir stories and all. But uh, but does yeah. that work? I, I feel um, like we went in, we went over this in the Hangover episode we did ages ago, but I don't recall. I don't know. It's been so long since yeah. I engaged in that. I feel like I probably did it, and then you know, probably later that night had more 
of whatever, like wine, Mm -hmm. and then felt terrible again and then woke up again. And again, you see how this all plays out. What I thought was interesting about the panel at the World Science Festival is that they showed the brains of a meth addict, a heroin addict, and um, an obese person. And what Mm -hmm. they saw, again, is less D2 receptors in the brain. And they said, look, this, this is also true for obesity, which is essentially food addiction. And if you look in terms of obesity, 90% of cases of severe obesity are food addiction with only 10% of the cases of severe, severe obesity having to do with a metabolic defect. Again, some of this bleeds over to this other area. When we talk about obesity, we tend to judge the person and the willpower, right? Or the lack of willpower. Mm-hmm. When what we're seeing here is the habit becoming so ingrained. Another way the brain changes, addiction uh, results in more synapse connections. Uh, this is the idea that the pathways uh, to the habit uh, forms more connections uh, and then more the, the more the substance is abused. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is an area that researchers are still trying to, to fully understand uh, what's going on here. But uh, but my understanding based on the, the research materials we're looking at is that, that, uh, that this is thought to tie in to, uh, to, again, those drug memories that are formed. The idea that when one is, is, is taking the substance, you're encoding all of these memories mm-hmm. uh, about the use of the substance, the environment in which the substance is used, and uh, and that that's playing into the, these uh, various synapse connections. Yeah, they had a, a great image of that, and you could see where the little synaptic connections were created. And um, and it did kind of give you this idea, like, here's all the stuff that's being created so that you can have a sticky, sticky memory of the path to get back to the behavior or the addiction. Yeah, sticky memory, in, in a sense. Yeah, it's like a sticky placed right on the brain saying, yeah. hey, this is uh, this is the way to feel good right here. Well, it's kind of, and it was sort of a terrifying image, too, because it sort of showed the, the normal synapse, the connection there, and then this other sort of thing that shows up. And it had sound effects, too, as I remember. It kind of went... <laughs> you know? Right, it did have some sort of alien-like... Like some like, sort of brain alien squid. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing that has affected is your hippocampus uh, that's sort of rewired in the brains of alcoholics. And we talk about the hippocampus. We were talking more about memory here. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense that if you're an alcoholic, um, a lot of your memories aren't going to be stored in the same way or even committed long term in the same way. And uh, what has been found is that heavy drinking can reduce total hippocampus volume. And that was reported in the November 2006 issue of Alcoholism Clinical and Experience mental research. Uh, I've seen other papers on this, too, that will say that the person's memory, while it can suffer, that the brain sort of shuttles um, the hippocampus, or rather some of the functions of the hippocampus to other parts of the brain to try to make up for that. Um, but what we're talking about here is an imperfect memory. Right. Also, it has an effect on willpower, uh, you know, with, the, with decreased willpower. Yeah, so that's kind of, you know, adding like some insult to injury here, right? Because, you know, you engage in the behavior and if it becomes routinized enough, then all of a sudden that part of your brain that deals with executive function, well, you don't have nearly as much uh, neural activity there because of the behavior. So even if you wanted to quit, it makes it that much harder. Another way that, uh, that, that we're actually seeing uh, the, the brain change here with addiction, uh, 2012 research from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine uh, using mice uh, in, a, in a research project found that uh, heavy alcohol use actually rewires brain circuitry, making it get harder for alcoholics to recover psychologically following a traumatic experience, which, again, feels like another kick in the gut 
uh, to this overall situation because you suddenly decreased willpower and you're going to have a harder time bouncing back from uh, from traumatic events. And therefore, what comfort blanket do you run to? You go to the the, the, the substance that is the, the the gateway to feeling normal again. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about relapse in the next episode. Um, but when we talk about more about the future of addiction. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, when do people tend to relapse? Not when things are going well. It's when something terrible or stressful is happening in their mm-hmm. lives. And, um, again, you've got those ghosts of the neural circuitry just sitting there. Uh, waiting to be activated. Yeah, I think when we were uh, discussing uh, habits in one of our uh, habit episodes for around New Year's time, I think uh, we talked about when the, when the brain forms a new habit, it's like uh, it's like a road. Okay, you have a, a two lane highway uh, going from point A to point B. When you want to build a new road, you have to build next to that existing road. It, you know, yeah, or or even off of that existing road. So maybe you have the new four lane highway over here, but that two lane highway is still there. Uh, the brain still knows where it is. And if it has to, or if it thinks it has to, it will take that road. That's right. So if that road is that you take a drink at 6 p.m., mm-hmm. and that's when all of this would begin, these triggers, then you just take the other road. Maybe you go and work out at 6 p.m. You have to uh, take something else and replace the behavior in order to really sort of uh, mess with the ghosts of the neural circuitry. Um, in fact... When we talk about habits, um, there are a couple of authors and researchers, Anne M. Grable and Kyle S. Smith, writing for Scientific American, and they say that we learn in chunks, kind of like if you were committing the digits of pi to your, your memory, mm-hmm. you would probably do them in chunks like, say, seven digits, right? And they were saying the same thing happens with habits, and this happens when the prefrontal cortex communicates with a striatum. And the striatum communicates with the midbrain, where dopamine helps with learning and assigning values to values to goals. And they say that these circuits create feedback loops, which help us to figure out what's working and not working in behavior. And as we re- even the, and this, that's sort of the point where you can be like, eh, I don't know about this behavior, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you're maybe your uh, executive functions are sort of still intact, but let's say you keep repeating the behavior over and over again, well, that feedback loops become stronger, stamping routines into these single units or chunks. Yeah, the chunking process, which I think when we've touched on uh, on this before, the analogy I always go to is, is like hotkeys, you know. Instead of uh, yeah. instead of going through uh, you know go to the drag down menu in a in a program and then go to the, another sub menu to pull up this tool that you use all the time, you just start using the hotkey, and then the hotkey becomes such a habit, you forget how to find it elsewhere. You may even forget what the hotkey is. You just have the muscle memory of hitting it. And this, you see the same thing in various programming, right? In where the program is if X, then Y and Z. So that's what your brain is doing. It's taking the shortcuts. It's, a, it's an economic way of doing the same task over and over again. Well, here's the crazy thing that these researchers saw is that, and they saw this in rats too, by the way. Mm-hmm. They saw they did a ton of research on this. Um, they saw that chunking, that imprinting getting stronger and stronger with the feedback loops. And eventually, another system called the infralimbic system, well, it says, oh, I'll help you out here, striatum, and I'll help you chunk some more of these and imprint this stuff. And so what happens is that the infralimbic cortex uh, begins to work in concert with dopamine and begins to really control when uh, we should dabble in this activity. And it's almost like that infralimbic system becomes, it's sort of like this outside part of the brain going, well, okay, striatum, if you're going to keep doing this and your loops are going to get, you know, 
uh, more and more well-trenched, then I'll go ahead and vet this behavior. Hmm. And as we talked about with Charles Duhigg in his book about habits, at some point, habits become so ingrained that your prefrontal cortex is just like, you know what, I don't need to do this. I know this. This person's, this is that person's habit. And I don't, I just need to go radio silent here because the rest of the brain knows what to do now and pick up. All right. So I know what everyone's wondering at this point uh, is all this damage we've, we've, uh, we've talked about the changes that are occurring to the brain, the damage. Is it reversible? Can you actually turn back the clock on this and, and sort of reclaim the brain? Kind of depends on age and genetics, according mm-hmm. to the panel from the World Science Festival. And the level of neural plasticity. So, hey, if you're younger and you catch this, well, obviously the damage to your brain can be, um, then you can kind of go back in the time machine and, and work things back out. Yeah. And uh, you're often earlier in the overall timeline of addiction, too. Yeah. So you have that working in your advantage. So basically, the earlier you catch it, the earlier you're able to actually get in there and not, not, not as much as even turn back the clock as much as just try to prevent um, going further down the road, the better off you're going to be. If you are further down the road, um, you've got those molecular and cellular scars that remain on the brain. Um, you could actually maybe have a little injection of synthetic human growth hormone. And researchers from Uppsala University in Sweden have been doing this. Uh, they have been looking at brain cells targeted for early death by continued opiate use. And they're seeing that that some of those cells can be salvaged by this um, human growth hormone. Oh, well, excellent. So, but um, you know, who knows sort of what the side effects are of that? And that's yeah, certainly down don't, the road. Don't uh, hedge your bets on that and say, oh, well, I'll just get an injection in my brain and that'll fix everything once I've uh, I've uh, actually put the put the halt on the drug use. Yeah, if you've listened to our earlier episodes, uh, don't pee on yourself if you've been stung by a jellyfish. Mm-hmm. Don't self trepanate. And don't inject yourself with HGH. Yes. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Uh, there is a just you know intro into the science of addiction. What's happening in the brain? What kind of changes are occurring? And uh, and and what can be done uh, ultimately to reverse some of this damage and and put a stamp on it. Yeah, and David Linden uh, said something very interesting to Terry Gross when he was on her show and he was talking about his book, The Compass of Pleasure. He said, when you understand the biology of the pleasure circuit and when you understand how the contribution of genetics and stress and life experience actually even starting in the womb and going forward all come together, the end result is that you have to realize that any one of us, any one of us could be an addict at any time. Addiction is not fundamentally a moral failing. It's not a disease of weak-willed losers. When you look at the biology, the only model of addiction that makes sense is a disease-based model, and the only attitude toward addicts that makes sense is one of compassion. So there you have it, the science of addiction. And, hey, the next episode is going to explore the future of addiction. So I hope uh, you will stay tuned uh, to listen to that episode as well. In the meantime, you can explore this and countless other topics at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where you'll find all the videos, all the podcasts, blog posts, links out to our social media accounts like our Facebook, our Twitter, and our Tumblr. And, hey, if you want to shoot us an email, uh, if you have thoughts about addiction, uh, your own dealings with it, your own dealings with the science of it, you can send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 